Okie doke, this is the last uh, sermon in the first part of our series called Getting Our uh, Bearings. Next week's on the way, and then in a fortnight's time, we'll start something different, which I'll say a little bit about in a moment. But we've been trying to lay uh, the foundations to our understanding of prayer and what it means to pray. Prayer, not a list of wants or even needs. Prayer, not a list of things for myself or even others, however good or noble they may be. But prayer is something quite different, an invitation to move into the heart of God. Prayer, our response to God's invitation to come home to his heart, to draw close to the one whose heart lies at the very core of the universe. And I guess as we've been thinking about this, we realize how quickly and how easily we reduce prayer to something different, something that it never was or intended to be. And and so our disappointment with prayer is fueled. We do something that isn't quite what it should be, then what we do doesn't work, and then we get cross because we think it shouldn't be like that. And so our our cycle of disappointment and uh, delusion with prayer sets in. In a fortnight's time, we're going to start a new section uh, called Lessons in Prayer, which are all kinds of different aspects to prayer that the Bible teaches, and indeed there are many more besides. But those lessons of themselves are pointless, in fact useless, if the foundation is not right. So to go back to where we were last Sunday for a moment, if God's over there and I'm typically over here, I can learn over here all the lessons that I want to learn about prayer, but I'll never begin to pray. So the lessons in them themselves will will not help me. What will help me, the only thing that will help me, is for me to move closer and to respond to that invitation that was at the heart of what we were sharing uh, last Sunday. And so the danger is, as we move forward, is that we think about the lessons and we create out of them things that we think we should do and think, providing I do those things, then I will pray as I should. And if I pray as I should, then God will answer as he should. If you're still praying over here, you are not actually praying. And so the danger is that as we move forward is that we begin to focus on all the things that we should do that will create all kinds of power as we gather them up if we're walking towards him, but if we choose to stay over here, we can learn all the lessons that we choose, and it will be in the end to no avail. You need to help me keep moving over here. I need to help you keep moving over here. And all the lessons on prayer in the world will not, in the end, do that for us. So I'm nervous about us moving forward, if you can understand, in terms of the lessons to uh, learn. At the end of the day, when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, our Father. The only way you will pray is to be able to say, our Father, my Father, like I do. The only way you will pray is if you relate to God as I relate to him. And that remains the challenge before us. But this morning, I want then to build a picture as to why we might bother to travel the journey. Why go to the school of prayer? In fact, why go to any school at all? You ask yourself that question one day, 
You've been challenged to answer that question by your children, some of you, I'm sure. You go to school because you need a good education. Why? Because a good education increases the likelihood of you having a job of your choice. Why? You will want a job of your choice in order to open up life's opportunities. Why? And so on and so forth. Until you get so bored just because it is. And we could say, well, actually, get on with learning about prayer just because it is, because it's there in the Bible. No ifs, no buts, don't worry about it, or think what you might gain from it, or even begin to imagine what else anybody else might gain from it. It's there, do it. Jesus said, when you pray, he didn't give you any choice in it. He assumed that you would, as a follower of him, be utterly committed and devoted to a life of prayer. That was his assumption. When you pray, when you give, when you fast, uh, scary passages early on in Matthew's gospel, the things that he anticipated we would do. But, but, but God's kinder than that. Because the Bible's full of stories and promises and hope of the difference that learning to pray can make. Can prayer actually make a difference? For some of us, for a variety of reasons, our minds have become closed to the possibility of prayer actually making a difference. If you hear someone talking about an answer to prayer and you are instantly cynical about it, more prone to explain it away than accept it by faith, it's a good indication that your mind is more closed rather than open to the possibility of prayer changing something. If you're sceptical about healing, if you regard most things as coincidences, if you're more comfortable with finding a human explanation, you're probably fairly closed to the possibility of God being at work in a way that to him is natural, but appears supernatural to us. At the heart of it, of course, is a philosophical issue. The issue in the end isn't, is your mind open or closed, but is the universe in which we live an open universe, therefore open for God to be involved in it, or is the world, the universe, closed so that everything is predetermined and there is no possibility or anticipation or expectation that God or anybody else could get involved from the outside in it. It's a terrible feeling to be asked your opinion about a forthcoming decision only to discover that the decision has already been made. A good number of years ago now, that experience happened to, to me in particular on behalf of us as a church. We live in a particularly deprived area. If you look up the statistics, the social demographic and the social stats for the area around the building here, it's particularly deprived. And because of that, uh, several years ago, it was earmarked to receive European funding for particularly deprived areas. And a huge consultation took place involving the churches and others about what we should, we, that was the language, what we should do with this opportunity. And, and we, we, we responded in all kinds of different ways, only to discover at the end that it was all really decided. Sewn up before the conversation had even begun. Is that what prayer's like? What will be, will be. God has already decided. It's already stitched up before you even begin to pray. The universe is closed. If that be the case. The Bible always, always talks about it being open. The Bible always presents prayer as creating the possibility for change that might not have been there had the prayer 
not been prayed. Think of the great prayers of Moses, Elijah, and Daniel, and Hannah, and Nehemiah. They believed that the outcome to their prayers were not fixed beforehand, but they were fervent about their praying in the belief that their prayers could actually result in a changed outcome. Here's Solomon's prayer, for example, recorded in 1 uh, Kings, around the whole time of, of dedicating the temple and, uh, and all the longing for, for, for God and uh, through the people. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. They were expectant that God would actually do something in response to the prayer that was being offered by Solomon and also by the people. Think about what happened in Samuel's day. They said to Samuel, whatever else you do, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And if you know the context and you know the story, you will know that uh, Samuel carried on praying and the people of God won a great victory against the Philistines at that time. They saw their winning, their success, as a direct result of Solomon's prayer. So open, in fact, the Bible, is that it even talks about God changing his mind, or God relenting in response to the people's prayer. So, for example, um, the, uh, Moses goes up to the mountain to, to get the Ten Commandments. He's away a little bit too long, and the people decide, well, we've had enough, we can't survive without Moses, so we're going to create an idol, and they build themselves an idol, and they start worshipping the idol. When Moses gets back down and sees what's happening, he's mad, uh, and God is well mad. He doesn't quite say well mad, but that's, that's what he was. God was furious. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. I, I cannot see, says God. Another way but to stand against the idolatry that is before me. And Moses goes, whoa, if I be so bold. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Turn from your fierce anger. And again, if you're familiar with the dialogue, you'll know that in the end, because Moses stood in the gap, because Moses interceded as a precursor for what Jesus would do, as Moses stood between God and the sins of the people, the Lord relented and did not bring uh, the, the disaster that he had threatened. The outcome was changed because of the prayer of one man. So prayer is always brought to us as something that brings objective change. But I suspect that our willingness to go on any kind of journey of learning, because it's always hard and costly, is related to how much we believe that could be ever become my experience. Do I think that today, uh, in 2010, this year, in my life, in my circumstance, I could move to a place where my prayers are actually affecting change? Paul puts it like this. He talks about our responsibility and our great privilege to be co-workers with God. He says the journey is like this. It's God's will and it's God's purpose, but he's calling you to partner with him. And when you pray, when you partner with him, when you work in accordance to his will, when you think his thoughts and have his mind, you become partners bringing in, ushering in his purpose. We are to pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Why? What's the point of that prayer if what 
is going to be done on earth is going to be the same as what is in heaven anyway. And manifestly it's not. If you're confused, this is not heaven. And so we're to pray that that will happen, that that will be uh, our experience, that that's what we'll see, that that's what we'll know. So what kind of things, well that's what I want to share with uh, you in the remaining time, what kind of things might we expect to see prayer change? But let's pause for a moment about this sense of responsibility. Richard Foster puts it like this, this comes, this ability to co-work with God, this comes as genuine liberation to many of us. But it also sets tremendous responsibility before us. We are working with God to determine the future. Certain things will happen in history if we pray rightly. We have to change the world by prayer. What more motivation do we need to learn this loftiest human exercise? Change. Objective change. Prayer is not in the end just about feeling better. It's not just about gaining a better perspective, although that's a magnificently huge thing that prayer achieves. But prayer will bring about change. Firstly then, prayer has the power to change hearts. The power to change hearts. The story that Lynn read to us is a dramatic uh, conversion of Saul, whose uh, task was to travel as a religious Jew to obliterate the Christians. And so that's why he was on his way to Damascus. And there he was met along the road and received a complete change of hearts. Going to Damascus in order to uh, exterminate the Christians, he ended up going there and finding uh, his whole purpose, which was to open up the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. And, And I wondered, why did that happen that day? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, why? Why, why did Jesus suddenly appear to Saul that day on that road? Was it, what other factors were there involved? You know, who was the evangelist? Who was the person working with Saul, sharing with him Jesus? As far as I can tell, we only get one very small glimpse. Anyone know? I think someone said it. Say it a bit louder. Someone's got the courage. Stephen. Absolutely. Stephen. Stephen. At the end of Acts chapter 7, Paul is holding the coats while they kill a young Christian man called Stephen. The Bible says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And as he was dying, he prayed blessing upon those who were responsible for his death. That is the only thing I can find, the only clue as to why one and a half chapters later, Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Could it be that prayer is that powerful to change hearts? I don't dispute that there might be many other factors going on in Saul's journey. I don't dispute that the very visual picture of uh, Stephen dying with such trust and such faith must have disturbed Saul to the core. But nevertheless, why did he find faith? Who told him? From all we can understand, Saul was surrounded by his minions. He was high up as 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 a rabbi, well respected. Everyone followed him, surrounded by his bodyguard type people. He he wasn't being uh, 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 chatted to down at the local pub uh, on a Friday night about his faith or whatever. 
But one man's prayer changed his heart. And it was going to be the result of many, many, many lives changed. Nehemiah in the Old Testament. You know, the beginning of Nehemiah, the, the beautiful chapter all about prayer. And at the end of this chapter on prayer, when God has changed Nehemiah's perspective, when God has changed Nehemiah, when God has given Nehemiah a purpose for his part in the future plan, prayer was achieving so many things. Nehemiah gets to the point when he believes he has to go to the king and say to the king, can I go and help the Jews? Now, there was a big problem with that. You see, the, the reason the Jews were in such trouble is that the king had ordered that the city be overrun. And the reason the king had ordered that the city should be overrun was because uh, there was huge fear that if a city like Jerusalem regained something of its power, it would revolt against the empire. They were regarded as the revolutionaries. They were regarded as those who would tip the balance of power. And so Nehemiah goes to a pagan king and says, would you mind me going back and helping rebuild the city of those people that if they were to get a little bit stronger, they would undermine potentially your power in the kingdom? Now, most people just got beheaded for that kind of request. But it says beautifully in chapter 2, a few verses in, after Nehemiah saturated the whole moment in prayer, then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. It was an unbelievable change of heart from a pagan king. Prayer has the power to change hearts. Prayer has the power to change habits. Prayer has the power to change habits in you. Prayer has the power to change habits in others. In the 1980s, Graham Kendrick's uh, uh, Make Way vision went right across the UK and indeed all around the world, inspiring Christians to get out of their churches, onto the streets, to pray and to praise. So uh, uh, many people were involved in uh, marches for Jesus around the world in the 80s. Anyone do any of that? A few of you. A few of you, you did, but you're embarrassed about the way you did it because it was the 80s, I know. So uh, we marched through uh, uh, Cardiff, uh, 5,000 of us, and prayed. And, and to do that, you, you cause havoc, you stop the traffic, you make everybody angry, you're anything but a blessing to the shoppers, uh, and you do it all in the lovely name of Jesus. Uh, and, and because of that, you need the cooperation of the police. On that day, when we went through uh, the center of Cardiff, a busy commercial Saturday morning, they said there was not one incident of reported crime for the whole of that time. That had never happened before, and to my knowledge, never happened since. Now, nobody can prove a thing, but that's strange, isn't it? Neil Boast, who's the Ipswich police sergeant that spoke at the uh, Pentecost uh, uh, praise we had on the Cornhill last year, said the same thing. Not in Cardiff, we would expect it to be more powerful and heavenly, but here in Ipswich, right out on the East Coast. Imagine God doing that here. And he, he said, he said, I'm not a Christian, but something is happening when you Christians pray. He spoke of more faith in prayer than sometimes we hear in our churches. And he said this, the Ipswich town pastors have gone from strength to strength, and I'm very proud of them, comma, us. Cheeky what's it. <laughs> it's probably the best thing I've achieved. Huh? It's probably the best thing I've achieved in my police service. It certainly reduced crime in Ipswich Town Centre. Sexual assaults were down by 70% compared to the previous year on the first Christmas when the town passed as patrols. 
So, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. But, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Here is a person who isn't yet a Christian, who goes, the most successful thing I've ever done in my career, actually I didn't do anything at all towards it. You Christians did it, and it was the power of your presence and your prayer. You can read the full article on the network what's it, website and it's on my blog and all that as well. But it, what's this? You listen to him, he has more faith in what our prayers can do than we do. Sometimes. The power to change habits. The Eastern Area Commander writes on behalf of the whole uh, police force his appreciation and hope that uh, our work will, quote, long continue. So it's interesting, isn't it, that what the police service can't do, and of course they would like to do so much more, but because of the financial constraints and others on them, what legislation can't do, the power of prayer did. And is doing in our town. Prayer has the power to change uh, health. I can remember as a teenager leading the youth group, and it was simple in those days. We'd often pray for young people. Most of them weren't Christians, and most of the time they would get healed. And I remember the day when it started. We'd all been away to spring harvest. Uh, this is probably back in the 80s as well. Really movers and shakers back then. And, uh, and some of you are still in the clothes, hoping that those days will return. One day they will. And uh, you'll be ahead of the game. Uh, so, so we'd been to spring harvest. You know, people, people were being uh, uh, healed of serious physical conditions. People were being freed from addictions and so on. This was all in the youth meetings at spring harvest. And I noted then, actually, that what was happening in the youth meetings seemed more powerful than what was happening in the adult meetings. Which is interesting. And it's still the case, says Claire, hopefully. But no, it is still the case. So, we'd all been away, and it's our first meeting back at home in our own church, the small discipleship group that I was the leader of. And in those days, uh, Spring Harvest was, was nothing like as mainstream as it is now. So it was a huge culture shock coming back. Friday evening, 5,000, Big Top, Graham, Ken and Dick and their band. And then Sunday morning... Five of us around a Calagas fire with Doris on the organ. It was not quite the same thing. And it was like, there's that and there's this. What is this? I've travelled across the universe. And so there we were, back. And uh, I can remember going for the first week back, opening up the church. The church had bars on the windows. It was less welcoming than a maximum security prison. It was bang in the middle of a, a very rough housing estate. The windows would be smashed the moment there was no bars or grills covering them, and so on. I opened up the building, and we lit the gas fire that breathed in the fumes. It kind of just helped you get through the, 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 sort of the time together. And, and, and the young people started coming in. And would you, Adam and Eve, it, Mandy comes in, and she's limping really painfully. It's a lot of pain with the bottom of her ankle. And all these youngsters are going, well, let's just pray for her. Now, there were two problems with that, as I could see it. One, this was not spring harvest. Two, I was now the leader. And that's what it was. I can remember faith draining from me from head to toe faster than the colour drained from Bart Simpson when he sold his soul for five pounds. And I'm there. And, uh, but they're full of enthusiasm. Let's just pray for her as, as if that's okay. So very reluctantly, I agreed, and we laid hands on Mandy, and I was beginning to rehearse the 25 reasons why God really loves to heal, and why God is so awesomely powerful, but why in this particular moment, he would probably choose not to, for the sake of all of us. 
No sooner had we laid hands on her, the power of the Holy Spirit came on her, and she was on the floor instantly. People used to call that slain in the spirit. You don't want to get slain in the spirit. That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't get up, but got carried out. Being overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit is a beautiful thing and long for it. So there she is, down on the floor. A few minutes later, she's up, her ankle perfectly healed. Unbelievable. I was more surprised than anybody that that had happened, kind of on my watch, and nothing to do with me. And it certainly wasn't my faith. And that began for us several years of seeing many people healed. Because as that happened, you think, wow, I'm a little keener to pray for somebody else after that. And I remember what rippled through the church as story after story of God healing people in remarkable ways, big and small. And in the midst of that, lots of failures and lots of sadnesses. Ironically, in those times when we saw God move in the mightiest power, we buried some of our closest friends. I don't understand all of that. But the power of God to change. The power of God to change health and the power of God to change heartaches. We see this a lot at Burlington, the power of God to change heartaches. God's ability to heal in this area is profound. Our greatest aches so often in the present are caused by pains in the past. And uh, uh, you've heard people tell stories. I'm going to read, read a story to you because I want to just protect people's uh, uh, privacy and so on. But this is a story about Betty, but it illustrates something that we see all of the time. The power of God to change heartaches. Betty and her husband came to counsel with me. I knew that they were a deeply committed Christian couple preparing for Christian service and that they had a solid marriage. However, recently there had been some relational difficulties between them and an increasing sense of depression on Betty's part. Her tears flowed freely that first time we met together, tears which surprised her. She thought she had turned them off many years ago, but now they seemed to turn themselves on uncontrollably, embarrassingly. When Betty came back to me the next time, she began to share her story. Her parents had been forced to get married because her mother was pregnant with her. It was an undesired marriage and Betty had been unwanted. When Betty was three and a half, her mother became pregnant again. However, her father had impregnated another woman at about the same time. This led to serious conflict and finally to divorce. Betty's memory of all this was incredibly clear. She vividly remembered that final day when her father walked out the door and left home. She remembered being in her own little crib bed in the room when it happened hearing the vicious quarrel and the terrifying moment when he left. It had left an aching, malignant core of pain deep within her. It was while we were in the midst of re-experiencing that incident during the time of prayer for the healing of those memories that the Lord took us right back into that crib. Jesus can do that, you know, because all time is present with him. He's the one who said, before Abraham was, I am. Our memories are all there before him, who is the Lord of time. During that healing time, Betty uttered a, a, a racking, wrenching cry of pain which had been buried for many years. I said to her, Betty, if you could have said something to your father from your crib at that moment, what would you have said? And suddenly the Holy Spirit brought back up into her memory exactly what she had felt in that moment of total isolation. And she cried out, not now in the voice of a young adult, but with the sobs of a three-and-a-half-year-old, Oh, Daddy, please don't leave me. And all the terror... And the pain of that moment came out with sounds too deep to be uttered. Prayer changes heartaches. And prayer changes homes. And uh, I'm going to ask Jo just to come and share what happened this week, uh, or last week even in her experience, rather than listen to me talk about it in theory. 
Hi there. Um, this is just one experience how God has used prayer in our home this week. Um, after the Christmas holidays, we started to see a change in Alex. He was becoming very fearful walking around our house. He was scared of going in the bathroom and started to wait through the night and wanted to come into our bed. At first, I must admit, as a mum, I was like, oh, Alex, really exasperated with him and frustrated because he just wouldn't leave my side. One night, Matt and I were praying together, and for the first time, I heard Matt speak in tongues. The atmosphere in our living room just totally changed. I was speaking to Kerry about Alex, and she offered to come and pray around our home. As Kerry and I prayed, she anointed our rooms with oil. The boys' bedroom was very dark with shadows, but whilst praying, the room got lighter and felt more peaceful. The bathroom was also a problem area, but again, whilst praying, a real peace and a brightness came into the room. That night, Alex slept all night in his own bed and has done ever since. You know, the one thing that really amazed me was Alex's spiritual intuition. At the age of seven, the Holy Spirit was at work in him and he could feel something wasn't right. Unfortunately, it took me a bit longer to work out that something was wrong. Yesterday, I was at a children's party and a song played during Pastor the Pastor was, Our God is a great big God and you know he is the great big God who is greater than any principalities on this earth. He knows you and he loves you since before the world began. How marvellous it is to be a part of God's amazing plan. Thank you. And prayer has the power to change hostilities. Edith Parsons, you didn't know her. But she was miserable, cantankerous, just awkward. You kind of know who I'm talking about. In most groups, you might find an Edith Parsons. If you don't know who she is in your group. I can remember as a teenager being incredibly impressed with a woman who was then old enough at least to be my mother, talking openly but privately about the struggle with Edith Parsons. Really hard to love Edith Parsons. And she said, I, I find it really hard to love her. But God loves her. And I'm starting to ask God's help to help me love Edith Parsons. And a testimony was so moving that how after uh, the weeks and months and years, she came to love the unlovable Edith. Love her in a way she never knew was possible. I remember standing with Maria at Edith Parsons' funeral as tears poured down her face because she discovered what it was to love with the power of the love that comes from heaven. Because she prayed, help me cross this wall of hostility. Tremendous stories have come out of um, South Africa. 
and uh, the removal of apartheid and what God was doing behind um, uh, uh, the scenes. I, I'd love, to, we haven't got time, I don't think. I'd love to read you some of, the, uh, of those stories this morning uh, that, that never made the news, but stories that sit just behind the news stories about the way that God was answering prayer. You will never have heard, I don't suspect, for example, of the way Chief Butelezi's plane took off and returned because it malfunctioned, and then they couldn't find any reason why it malfunctioned. And then at the airport, he met a man of prayer, and how that changed the outcome of a series of events. My name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll, I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We talked about these verses when we looked at uh, uh, Malachi last year. Great promise of what God will do when people begin to pray. Edwin Orr talks about the, the revival of uh, a century or, or two ago uh, and talks about the, the million people that were converted during a single year in the United Kingdom, 1860, as tongues of fire descended on rising young evangelists. The London response to the Spirit's work was preceded by what? By 200 daily prayer gatherings throughout the capital. Halls were densely packed for nothing but simple prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing is that it's happening right now, right here in our town. If we'd only begin to open our eyes and see. Ten years ago, Liz Beaton started something called Ipswich in Prayer. And it celebrates its 10th anniversary uh, in 2010. And what happened quite soon with her enthusiasm and her ability to network people, was that suddenly across our town, there was a network of prayer taking place that had never happened before. It was a network taking place amongst leaders in the town, and also a network taking place amongst people who were uh, signing in to receive her information and to connect with all that was going on. Out of that momentum of prayer has come all kinds of different things that God has been doing in our town. So out of the encouragement to pray has given birth to all kinds of activities which just 10 years on we're able to celebrate. So 10 years on, Ipswich in Prayer has now around 60 churches involved and prayer is the foundation that's launching a lot of what's happening here in our town. And we're going to watch a DVD, it's about five minutes uh, that celebrates what's going on in our town. And, and the fascinating thing uh, uh, for me is that it began when one woman said, now some of the things have been going before this, so, so, so you know, bear that in mind, it's not, a, it's not a complete fix, but many of the things that are happening now was because one woman said to this town, hey, let's have a go at taking prayer seriously.